It is time to answer some big questions about our universe. This is All Things Photonics, a podcast about the physical science of light, lasers, optics, and fascinating tech news. Each episode, you'll hear groundbreaking stories from around the world about the fibers of science, from its triumphant past to its audacious future. Brought to you by Photonics Media. This is Associate Editor Joel Williams. Here are this week's top stories. A team of researchers from Columbia University has documented the simultaneous imaging of the responses of thousands of olfactory sensory neurons within the nose of a mouse using a high-speed imaging method called swept confocally aligned planar excitation microscopy. Purdue University researchers have developed a technology that enables 3D super-resolution imaging inside whole cell or tissue specimens. The technology allows scientists to locate the positions of biomolecules inside whole cells and tissues with a precision down to a few nanometers. A physician from Florida Atlantic University's Schmidt College of Medicine and collaborators from the University of Arizona College of Medicine Tucson and the Indiana University School of Medicine have discovered the presence of fluorescent solutions on personal protective equipment indicating an exposure to COVID-19. At the Paul Scherer Institute, researchers have discovered a green luminescent substance that could enable organic LEDs to deliver high light yields inexpensively and on a large scale. And finally, Rice University researchers plan to reconfigure their wastewater treatment technology to capture and deactivate the virus that causes COVID-19. Their chemical-free nanotechnology, introduced earlier this year as a way to kill bacterial superbugs, and degrade their antibiotic resistance genes in wastewater will use graphitic carbon nitride to selectively absorb viruses and then disable them by activating nearby catalysts with light. Today's episode is sponsored by Coherent. Coherent lasers have been enabling breakthroughs in scientific research, life sciences, microelectronics, and materials processing for over 50 years. Today, in collaboration with SPIE, we're proud to support the academic community in the shift to virtual learning by offering an in-depth online course on laser technology and applications for free. Learn more at www.coherent.com ATP, as in all things photonics. As you know, Andy, the laser market's been pretty competitive recently, and Coherent is still Uh, sort of fighting for that top spot. So where do you see an opportunity to gain market share from your competitors in the future? I think the more, even more important question is, where can we actually have a first mover advantage? The laser industry is truly a high-tech industry. In many cases, our R&D teams are pushing the boundaries of what's technically feasible. So what we're looking for is identifying market opportunities to where the puck will be going to and being the first at providing 
not only technically feasible, but also commercially viable products and solutions to our customers to develop those markets, to grow those markets, and get rewarded by um, the market share that we're going to take in those type of scenarios, as well as the margins that you will be able to generate when you're the first to commercialize them IP. And Coherence made some significant acquisitions in the past. You're also part of the uh, Diebold Nixdorf merger when you worked for McKinsey and also uh, with Coherence acquisition of Rofin Sinor. I'm just curious if this is sort of a future opportunity that you're looking at with uh, more growth for Coherent, any mergers and acquisitions that you think will be a part of the future for the company and if it's uh, just a significant aspect of your grand outlook for the future. Super early, and uh, my vision at this point in time is extremely blurry at best. But just in general, how I think about it, the best way to improve your position in the market is to develop IP yourself. It's the most defendable, it gives you the best, the biggest advantage versus your competition, and it usually rewards you with the highest returns. Having said that, of course, we will be looking out and we will be continuously asking the question, will we be faster to market if we buy versus make, and which of the two would be the preferred option? When and if we come to the conclusion that we were to buy an asset, there is two types of acquisitions that one can think through. The one is, think about small tuck-in acquisitions where you buy up some very specific IP in the market. Coherent has traditionally done that for many, many years. Mark, you can fill in how many acquisitions we've done. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure I remember, Andy, but it's certainly uh, double digits. Yeah. Exactly. And especially in this day and age where you find other company with that may not be as well capitalized smaller companies um, than a coherent, there might be an opportunity to, to pick something up. But the company has and will continue to be very opportunistic, and we're talking small type of acquisitions. Second uh, type of acquisition, the ones that you were referring to, Emmett, whether it was a Rofin acquisition that Coherent did or what I did at my old company, those big type of transactions wouldn't be the first thing on my radar screen right now. And at a time like the one that we're in at the moment, where cash preservation is king, I'd say when and if we were to do something like this, it would be midterm. It would not be something that we would do in the near term. Mark, I just want to give you an opportunity to expand anything that you might have thoughts on for that. No, I think Andy actually summarized it well. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, the companies historically, if you look back over our 50-year history, uh, we've certainly been an acquisitive company on a reasonably regular cadence. And uh, the majority of our acquisitions throughout the company's history have been probably what, in the term that Andy would, would use as the tuck-in type. So a smaller acquisition that brought with it key IP or a key customer base or a key technology that we didn't have. And um, I think we have a pretty successful track record of, of doing that and then being able to build upon those businesses. So, uh, you know, um, I think we've got a good track record of doing that. And I would imagine that will be, you know, something that we'll continue to look at as we move forward.
Charles Pettit covered science for 47 years as a newspaper, news magazine, and freelance writer, including 26 years at the San Francisco Chronicle. How the Laser Happened was published in 1999. In it, Charles H. Towns, along with Pettit, gave us a behind-the-scenes look at the evolution of laser technology. Charlie, thank you so much for sitting down with us today. Well, you're very welcome. I'm looking forward to this conversation, and happy, happy birthday, majors, lasers, and all the rest of it. <laughs> so, our, our first question, when you're thinking about when you wrote that book with Charles Towns, do you have any fond memories looking back working with him or can you just give us a, a preview of how Towns found you and how you got involved in this project? Sure. Well, he was a very famous man at Berkeley. By this time, he was long since finished from Columbia and the, and the Bell Labs. And I was a science writer at the Chronicle. But he called up, the, who was then the science editor, Dave Perlman, who at age 102 was now sheltering in his house in San Francisco and asked him if he knew anybody or if he could do this and assist him on writing a book about how the laser came to be and the major as well. So Dave said, I, I really can't do it, but my colleague Charlie Pettit might be up for the task. So I went over and met him and I, I hadn't met him before. I certainly knew who he was, but, um, Met him in his, uh, his office up on a high story overlooking the Berkeley campus and got to know him very well. We, uh, he basically just needed someone to type it. But by that means he couldn't type a draft himself because he didn't type and he didn't want to try to handwrite an entire book. So he and I would have long conversations. I would record them and listen to them and write up a, a proposed first chapter or second chapter. And then he'd go through and in triple space it, print it out, hand it to him. And a week later it would come back covered with scrawls. <laughs> so while it's easy to have called me a ghostwriter, he was intimately involved in massaging, changing, elighting my text the whole way. He's a wonderful man to talk with and I particularly enjoyed hearing from him as growing up on a farm in South Carolina up on the Piedmont where he, his family had a, his father was a lawyer but uh, in a small town and they grew crops, they were farmers and uh, and he got his introduction to science as a the local sort of a natural scientist collecting tadpoles and shells and fossils and anything else he could in the woods in the Piedmont of uh, of the Carolina area. And uh, if his brother, older brother, hadn't gone on to become a famous entomologist, then Charlie would have uh, wound up being the entomologist himself, but he decided not to compete with Charlie and so with his brother, Henry. And so he went off to become and learn physics. Did very well. Got himself into Caltech after a good long time wandering and teaching himself at home. Very, very hardworking man. And what was it like uh, just talking to him? You said that he was fun to talk to. What were your conversations like? He was. He was very serious. He was very kind. He was an extremely stubborn guy, but uh, he, he never boasted overtly. And he, he was patient with me. 
Uh, I had studied astronomy there at Berkeley, and I saw I knew some quantum mechanics, and I knew intuitively somewhat how the laser works. So that was an, an asset. But he, he, he once told me about, and it's in, in, the, in the book that you mentioned, How the Laser Happened, he was in Copenhagen in the, the early early to mid-50s when, they were, when he and his colleagues at Columbia were getting the first prototypes of the maser to work and produce a flash of coherent microwave radiation, usually shot through a, an, an ammonia gas or other gas after it had been pumped to a high, you know, pumped up the atoms to an uncomfortable level, and they all all surrendered their extra energy in one big old walk, and that was the, the maser. And he said he was walking down the street with Niels Bohr. <laughs> and Niels Bohr said to him, so what are you up to? And he said, naturally, I'm, just, he described the maser and the very precise uh, frequencies it produced of emissions and how it might be really important for messaging, spectroscopy, uh, amplification of precise wavelengths, all sorts of things, before the laser actually existed. And Bohr said, that's impossible. And the same thing was told to him by Johnny von Neumann at the same meeting. <laughs> it's impossible. It can't happen. And they both based it on the uncertainty principle, which, of course, limits the ability to, to nail down all the parameters of any particle precisely, because if you concentrate on momentum, you lose the size and location of something, things like that. And Charlie said, well, it does work. The reason was because you weren't really doing one particle, you were doing this huge collection of particles whose behavior was constrained for other reasons, not addressed by the uncertainty principle. But uh, but he stood up to these uh, very famous guys as a young, young uh, still a young researcher. And years later, you know, Bohr said, well, you're right. <laughs> it works. <laughs> it works. Uh, and then... Now we're celebrating the 60th anniversary of the laser. What do you think all these guys would be thinking when they look back on all the stuff that we've accomplished in the past 60 years? Well, he his career always involved lasers and similar instrumentation, of course. But most of his career, and especially when he got to Berkeley, went beyond electronics and spectroscopy. Uh, because he, he, he opened up a whole new field of uh, infrared astronomy and discovered a, a, a natural maser in outer space uh, and also studied giant stars like Betelgeuse. He was building a telescope up on Mount Wilson Observatory on the mountain down there in Pasadena. Uh, many, many such projects, which uh, had, had an extraordinarily fertile career. So he... He wasn't, he wouldn't be surprised so much now, but he, because he witnessed the entire growth and application of things, but he had never dreamt the full list and no one could dreamt up the whole uh, panoply of applications of lasers and spinoff technologies, but he rather depended on them. He lived by them. He knew that it, uh, it, he, had been fortunate enough to produce something which had his name on him and took him to Stockholm for to get a certain prize, but he didn't allow it to become him. He wanted to call the book, not how the laser happened, but Unturned Stones. And the publisher
publisher didn't like that because it was too uh, too fancy pants, I guess. <laughs> but uh, he, it was because he wanted to study things that nobody else knew. And he called this metaphorically unturned stones. I want to look underneath stones that other people haven't looked at and teach myself something new. He was genuinely curious. And he was, in his manners, extremely modest. But he fought terribly hard to keep the record of the laser and major and their histories and the truth of it as he understood it. And he had a lot of tussles later in his life with maintaining his version of the invention of the laser. What do you mean by his version? Oh, well, we talked earlier today about what he thought of Ted Maiman. And he admired him enormously. He never questioned that he and his partners at Columbia or anywhere else had made the first optical laser but fully recognized that over there at Hughes Labs, Ted Naiman had persisted in it, and that he'd been wrong to try to build one based on a gaseous medium, whereas Naiman saw that a solid state, I think it was a ruby crystal, uh, made a better foundation for the first laser, and more, a more direct route. On the other hand, he had a young uh, colleague at Columbia, named Gordon Gould, who many of your listeners may, may know his name, who felt that he had actually invented the laser and that while talking with a man named Gordon with Charlie in the lab there at Columbia, had seen the, what they were working toward and what they were trying to do with a maser to get down to optical wavelengths. And he sort of remembered that uh, sitting down and, and scoping out the actual resonator, this glass thing with half-mirrored ends at a laser, classically, is that Charlie says, no, he, he didn't do that by himself. We, would talk, we had talked about that ourselves. And these two guys were at it in court for 20 or 30 years, uh, fighting over the patent for who got it, and uh, some people believe it was Gordon Gould. I got to know Charlie so well, as such a decent guy, I can't imagine he made his version up. But I don't know. I don't know Gordon Gould, and I'm sure he has his his uh, his downward followers as well. But my impression always was that uh, Charlie Towns, he was just curious. He was just wanted to know things. He worked so hard. And, and, you know, the, an odd thing about Charlie Towns was that he was a very faithful member of his church. And his church was Christianity in general, but he had no particular sector. You know, he, he wasn't a Baptist necessarily or a Presbyterian or a Catholic. But he always went to church. And I, I only talked with him about a little bit because you don't find too much of this in the higher ranks of, of science deep religious faith and uh, and I asked him about it and he said well we never really know do we and and I, after I talked to him for a while I think it was because he was raised in a church going family in the Bible Belt of Carolina and his parents went to church that he went to church and he felt there was great wisdom in scripture and it's notable that uh, he and his wife Frances 
went to church every Sunday, but it wouldn't necessarily be one denomination or the other. He just liked the ritual and liked keeping faith with the faith of his forefathers, I think. Because I mean, he took Sundays off for reflection his whole life. As I said, I you know most, most professors on a Sunday go into the lab to see if their postdocs are hard at work at the bench like they're supposed to be. But Charlie didn't. He took it off, and I presume he was telling the truth when he says he reflected on scripture or, or whatever it might be. But he was he was serious about it. Um, and you mentioned this modest guy. Um, you say he's like a decent man, and that certain prize that he won in Stockholm that he didn't want to really define him. What did he ever say about the Nobel Prize? same joke that every professor who has a Nobel Prize in Berkeley does. He says, well, it got me a permanent parking pass <laughs> for the campus. You know, he's had a place to park for the Nobel laureates. Um, he didn't talk about that very much. He didn't make too much mind of his having won the Nobel Prize. And it's a part of, it was part and parcel with the fact that he didn't let inventions of masers and lasers dictate the rest of his life or allow him to rock back on his heels. He, uh, he just was always out there looking under stones, whether it's uh, the lives of stars or molecular dynamics of, of, of ammonia. I mean, his lifelong love was ammonia. He loved that molecule. And I don't know exactly why, but he compared it to a trampoline and it said that it, it has a, it has a very pure mode of oscillation, which makes it a turns out to have been a perfect medium for uh, the, the microwave aspect of measures. Do you think you'd have any advice for graduate students today or people in the photonics industry now? I don't know. I, I know it would be good. I know it would be very wise, and I know that public service would be a part of it. You know, Charlie's career was uh, much of it dominated by science policy issues. And he served, and he was among the founders of the DARPA organization, which I think the Trump administration is trying to get rid of. And uh, he was a part of it, and there was a defense agency that he was he ran for a while on policy. And he also served on advisory boards for every president from, I don't think it was like Eisenhower through Clinton. I mean, it was just, and he, he didn't have a strong partisan bone, but he, I, mean, I don't know whether he was a registered Republican or Democrat. I, I suspect the latter. I never asked him, but he, he served all administrations equally and gave up enormous time to the scientists non-scientific, I should say, non-rigorous discussions about about policy. And it, he was like a one-man Jason committee. <laughs> <laughs> when you talked to him, did, he, did you ever get a sense that there was something that was inspiring him? Or was it just this, uh, this insatiable quench for knowledge? Well, it was physics that dominated his scientific thinking just because that's what he studied. He, he told me a story when, when uh, he wanted to get a PhD. He had studied at Thurman College, was now Thurman University, full bore place, but it was just a small local college when he went there. And then I think he went briefly to Duke or 
somewhere in North Carolina, somewhere down there, before he got into Caltech. And he wanted to get a PhD in physics. And he used to say that people didn't know what a physicist was. And they weren't sure. And he said he would tell them that a PhD stood for post hole digger. <laughs> because <laughs> the only... Uh, uh, non-academic jobs in physics in those days in industry uh, most of them were in the oil industry which was just discovering how to use seismic uh, imaging with uh, basically acoustic noises and reflecting and echoing off underground structures and so physics graduate students and new physicists going to work for the oil company or spend most of their time out there digging holes in the ground for receivers or for dynamite so that they could find out where the oil might or might not be. When you talked to him, did he ever surprise you? Is there anything that stands out that you learned by talking to him? I learned patience. I learned perseverance just by listening about it. But he wasn't a great storyteller. (laughs) Fact teller. So he didn't describe things as a narrative. I had to put that in there but precision and attention to detail and to truth as far as I could tell the soul of his inner self to be careful and to serve people serve the better general good he was uh, you know, his wife were, were very philanthropic and they were very faithful and they mostly boosted humanitarian ends through their church work so I, I can't i can't i wish i could come up now if i had if i had a, if you'd asked me this five, 10 years ago when we were writing this book or 20 years ago almost uh, i'd have had a better answer no that's good uh, but, uh, yeah. um if you were alive today what would you want to ask him i had to ask charlie tenza why'd you have to go and die and not make quite make it to 100 <laughs> 99 years old <laughs> That's the day. That's how old my father was when he just, he was in, but in his hundredth year. I, I'd ask him the same thing you asked me to channel somehow from him, which is, what would his advice be to budding scientists today? Would it be to stick to physics, which is not the glamour science anymore? Physics has been for most of the century, uh, due to the research done on radar and so forth before the World War Two and on through it with the atom bomb and the Manhattan Project and then rocketry, the physics has been it, but for the last 10 years it's been the life sciences. You think of a scientist now, you think not necessarily of a physicist with a cyclotron, but you think of some somebody looking through DNA, hunting around for it to, to modify it. So I would be very interested to hear what he would say about the continued need for physical science research. Today's episode is sponsored by MKS Instruments and their Newport brand. The Newport product portfolio consists of a full range of solutions, including precision motion control, optical tables and vibration isolation systems, photonics instruments, optics, and optomechanical components. For more information, visit www.newport.com. And by Comsol, 
the leading developer of multi-physics simulation software, which includes tools for building and deploying simulation apps. Comsol's wave and ray optics capabilities are used for modeling imaging and sensing in consumer electronics and biotechnology, information processing in communication systems, and more. See how the Comsol software fits your optical analysis needs at www.comsol.com. Hi, this is Susan Petrie, Senior Editor of Photonic Spectra, with the uh, May 2020 editorial comment, Excelsior. On a recent stay-at-home afternoon, my daughter and I stood in the kitchen eating lunch. We were laughing when suddenly she stopped and said, You know, the minute I start feeling good, something happens, and I realize all the people dying on ventilators, and then I feel guilty that my life is okay. We live in upstate New York, and politics aside, tune in daily for Governor Andrew Cuomo's COVID-19 press conferences. We've watched with concern the growing number of fatalities, which is one reality. The conferences also offer a sort of structured problem-solving. Data points, hospital needs, personal stresses and victories, laid out with clarity, rational encouragement, and even compassion. That's another reality. The magnolia on the front lawn has started to bloom. A neighbor has tested positive more realities. Over the past few months, as vastly different local and international realities converge, it's sometimes hard to know how to act, also difficult to know when to shift between feeling and doing, to determine whom to believe and whom to trust, to know how to orchestrate the amount of time we linger in news or entertainment, and to find a clear line between the two. While we're getting better at navigating simultaneous realities, Early on, the public discourse reminded me of the ancient story of the seven blind men who encounter an elephant. Feeling different parts of its body, each man insists his limited perception is accurate. As I write this, COVID-19 is still something of an elephant. Some of us are touching grief, some are directly working with the disease, others are offering assistance or working in support roles, some are trying to save their businesses or regional economies, and impatient to create bridges to new opportunities. Luckily, the public narrative seems to have matured to a point where no one's insisting on a single limited perception. Acknowledging our abundance of realities, I'm going to step for a moment into the world of optics and photonics, where May is a month for celebrating. The laser turned 60 on May 16th. The International Day of Light, or hashtag IDL2020, is recognized as is World Metrology Day on May 22nd. While myriad edutainment venues have shifted online, I see a huge opportunity. In response to a President Trump tweet that there would be a big infrastructure bill coming, Mark Cuban tweeted in agreement, but said now is the time to rebuild with smart technologies. If ever there was a time to swarm leadership Twitter accounts with hashtag IDL2020 and hashtag photonics, this might be it. If ever there was a time for new paradigms regarding the role of science and government, this might be it. I hope you enjoy Hank Hogan's article on high-intensity laser initiatives. It marks truly magnificent progress over six decades. Additionally, Sabic's discussion on the importance of materials libraries for LiDAR systems designers and Spectralite's succinct illustration of filters, Valerie C. Coffey's article on automotive sensors, and 3D AG's look into holography and security are all timely and relevant. I've also checked in on the Coordinate Metrology Society. Be sure to have a look at what they're doing. 
last, there's a special section on COVID-19 coverage to show how the industry has been responding. Be well, and thanks for letting me impose my New York reality on you for a few minutes. Ever Upward, Susan Petrie. That'll do it for this episode of All Things Photonics. Our engineers are Alan Shepard and Brian Healy. Our featured artist is Kid Animal out of Los Angeles. You can find them on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or your favorite music app. Thank you most of all to you, our listeners. If you have a suggestion for a story or you just want to reach out, you can email us at allthingsphotonics.com. All Things Photonics is available on all major platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google. Subscribe wherever you may be listening and never miss a new episode. You can also subscribe to this podcast on our website, photonics.com slash podcast, where you will find episode notes, links to the complete stories you heard, and some interesting side stories that didn't make it in. I'm your host, Emmett Warren. You've been listening to a Photonics Media production. 